and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bashar Malkawi, Global Professor of Practice in Law at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. We will discuss his work on national security and international trade. So welcome to the show, Bashar. Uh, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm honored and happy to join your program. Delighted to have you on, and thanks for sharing your really interesting uh, and thoughtful papers with me. Um, so I was wondering if we could kind of start with a sort of a, a big picture, uh, global view, as it were. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about the relationship between national security and international trade, and why you see them as potentially in tension with each other. The, the relationship between uh, international trade and national security goes back uh, way to the 1940s uh, after uh, the uh, ashes of World War II and where the allied uh, countries came together and they uh, decided sort of to build up uh, the damaged global economy by establishing uh, uh, three institutions, basically, uh, the uh, Monetary Fund, uh, the World Bank, and what's supposed to be the International Trade Organization. And uh, the purpose was uh, really uh, to uh, build a legal structure that can sustain any uh, protectionist trade policies adopt that can be adopted uh, by countries. And the ultimate goal that when you open up markets, when you engage in trade, uh, it will lead to uh, economic relationship. This will lead uh, as well to a peaceful relationship. So countries won't think about war and or engage in the uh, protective uh, policies in the, or industrial policies. So this is was the underlying reason for establishing the these international organizations and uh, unfortunately uh, the international trade organization uh, never uh, uh, established uh, for political reasons. There was a time uh, for the U.S. Congress. They felt that this is a threat to uh, the national sovereignty for the U.S. So uh, countries adopted an alternative approach. It's called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Now, uh, the purpose of this uh, provisional agreement, which lasted until the 1980s before the establishment of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the purpose of to liberalize trade, to open up uh, markets, uh, to engage in uh, negotiations uh, uh, over uh, not only trading goods, but also trading services and intellectual property. Uh, as uh, any uh, general rule, there is an exception. So there, there was built the exception of national security exception uh, under Article 21 of GATT and under Article 21 as well of the uh, uh, WTO 1994. Uh, uh, this type of national security provision was never never really tested by any uh, panel under the GATT or uh, under the WTO, but uh, it was put in there just in case. It was used a few times, and uh, every time it was used, uh, there was always the controversy about uh, the terms and meaning and the circumstances for applying uh, national security. Now, nowadays... Uh, as we moved in, into the 21st century, we noticed that uh, so many countries, like the, we're talking about big economies such as the U.S., the EU, and China, are feeling now more comfortable. And uh, they have the courage right now, uh, the unfettered uh, uh, sort of... Uh, 
move to uh, employ these type of national security measures uh, to restrict trade. Uh, so this is where comes uh, the tension between international trade and national security. It seems that now that countries are more comfortable using uh, national security uh, to restrict trade uh, for so many reasons. And we've seen perhaps uh, uh, in the recent uh, health crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, that countries uh, used um, national security exceptions to restrict the export of uh, medical products. So this is where you see the tension between international trade and national security exception. Well, so in your work, you talk about boycotts, among other things. I wonder if you could kind of define what you mean by a boycott in this context and why you think that boycotts are a particularly interesting way of thinking about this relationship between national security and international trade. Uh, yes. I mean, if you look at uh, the GATT agreement, you'll find that, uh, for example, there are provisions related to uh, MFN treatment that if you give uh, any country an advantage or tariff reduction, you should apply to all other countries. This is an undiscriminatory treatment principle. You see also uh, Article 3, which, talk, which talks about uh, national treatment, that you should not discriminate among products within your own borders once they cross the borders. Now, uh, these are the non-discriminatory uh, principles within the GATT and should apply to all countries. Uh, so uh, the purpose is really to reduce tariffs. The purpose is to uh, not employ uh, quota measures, uh, not to employ tax the tax system in a way that would discriminate between domestic products and imported ones. Uh, so for the boycott, it seems that it is the worst type of sort of trade barrier for importing goods because you you uh, basically close your borders off in the face of uh, imports of goods, services, even the movement of people uh, between countries. Now, we have a couple of instances where we've seen countries employ a sort of economic boycott. We've seen uh, with regard to Iran, with regard to Cuba. So these are some of the examples that uh, comes to my mind uh, at this particular point. So it's the worst type of trade barrier that you can uh, imagine that a country or a group of country or international organization can impose uh, on a particular country because you, you basically cut off that country from international trade. So uh, uh, this sometimes uh, can be invoked in the name of national security. And there are legitimate reasons for this. But uh, in this type of boycott, you're not targeting particular industry or particular group of uh, government officials. You're talking about a whole country. So the argument in my paper or uh, in my work about, uh, in this area that uh, these seems to be uh, these type of measures. The economic boycott seems to be counterproductive because you're not targeting really the cause of the, uh, let's say, the tension with that particular country or group of countries. Because and, uh, for the economic, this type of economic boycott, you're really targeting a whole nation. Uh, which could be counterproductive economically and even politically. Well, so I, I, I guess reading your paper, I, I took your point that it seems like boycotts and the lack of kind of trade engagement that comes along with them seems counter to the kind of international law principles you're discussing and counter to ultimate goals of sort of engagement, peace, trade, and so on. 
I did wonder, however, do you think there are ever legitimate or valid arguments in favor of boycotts? I mean, I'm thinking specifically, like, in my youth, there was a certain amount of economic boycott of, like, South Africa, for example, on account of its apartheid practices. Um, how How do you think your argument against boycotts works in that context? Uh, what uh, what I focus uh, on, on my work and I intend my work, I, I've seen as a result of my work uh, uh, as a conclusion, I came to the conclusion that for some types of boycotts, uh, these boycotts really counter to the purpose of uh, engaging a country uh, in trade. I mean, I understand that uh, sometimes countries can in- engage in a dangerous behavior, but a boycott uh, uh, doesn't work. It leads to uh, more uh, economic conditions that are even worse for uh, the boycotters as well as for the boycotted country. Uh, I mean, you mentioned about South Africa apartheid system. Okay, we, uh, but uh, if we want to ask uh, the question, was the boycott beneficial at the end of the day? And the answer is, uh, to some extent, no. If you look at every case where there you have a boycotter country and you have uh, the boycotted country, you will see that uh, this boycott, type of boycott did not re- uh, lead to the desired outcome. No, no matter how many years the boycott would last. So my argument is we, we, do, we live in a different world. Things uh, have changed. Uh, we should not use uh, national security as uh, the ultimate reason for whatever imposing type of economic boycott or trade sanctions on other countries. Uh, it, uh, perhaps it's better or, and more beneficial if we just punish particular industries particular group of people, this uh, will uh, have more effect if we want really to change uh, something in that particular country or change a behavior. And at the same time, we engage that country in in a trade because I believe uh, that in the long term, a country will change its behavior because economics matter for them. Now, if you've seen uh, for so many countries, when a country imposes trade sanction on another one, no matter how many years that type of trade sanction lasted or sustained, you'll see that uh, behavior doesn't change. So my my, uh, own belief is that free trade, when we engage in free trade, even if other countries uh, do not follow our uh, democratic uh, principles or there are abuse of human rights or uh, uh, racial discrimination. But ultimately, this sort of economic interaction will lead to human interaction. And human interaction over time, even if it lasted for a long time, this will lead to a change because we expose people to other cultures, to other ideals. So this is my own uh, uh, belief that economic boycotts uh, do not lead to uh, a beneficial outcome for both sides. So I wonder if you could discuss kind of in more particular detail, a particular economic boycott that was at least ostensibly motivated by national security concerns, by kind of explaining what those sort of stated reasons were and why you think the boycott in particular wasn't effective. 
uh, 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 examples of boycotts that would come to my mind uh, perhaps is uh, the U.S.-Cuba uh, boycott where uh, the U.S. Uh, enacted the Hans Burton Act where they limited trade with Cuba and not only with Cuba but also with other countries who uh, uh, engage uh, in trade with Cuba uh, such as the European Union. That's why at that particular time uh, back in 1990s uh, the EU was up in arms, uh, arguing that this type of uh, boycott uh, has uh, direct and indirect effects, uh, the direct effects that uh, this is the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. Uh, this is uh, their own business. But uh, this type of boycott affected only uh, not Cuba, but any other country that uh, trades with Cuba. That's why the uh, EU at that time brought uh, an action uh, uh, against the U.S., uh, before the WTO uh, claiming that this type of uh, boycott is in violation of the non-discriminatory uh, treatment or principles in the WTO. But again, uh, this is sort of sensitive issue. Uh, no uh, country wants another one to uh, uh, second guess why they impose this boycott because this is a matter of national sovereignty. Uh, that's why uh, the EU did not follow up with the complaint, uh, the sort of... Uh, uh, try to uh, make a compromise with regard to this uh, type of uh, boycott. So it uh, never really uh, brought into uh, uh, full sort of litigation before the WTO uh, because this is a sensitive matter. And uh, for a long period of time, uh, boycott uh, and trade sanctions uh, and on the basis of national security is considered uh, a self-judgment uh, rule that no, no other country would allow another one or uh, some uh, neutral tribunal to set can guess uh, a country's national security. So this is an example of uh, uh, a boycott uh, that comes to mind. Well, I, I couldn't help but wonder as well, reading the papers that you sent me, whether when countries say that they're engaging in a boycott of another country for national security reasons, what kinds of national security reasons are they invoking? And I wonder whether they're always sincere. I mean, it seems like there's kind of an expressive element to boycotts often as well. Now, if if you look at the actual wording of Article 21, uh, the security exceptions in the GATT, and uh, by the way, uh, this provision uh, is implemented uh, with some tweaking and uh, either expansion or limitation by other countries into regional trade agreements. So, but the basic structure uh, is there that uh, uh, no country will allow uh, uh, a GATT or WTO panel or another country uh, to uh, determine its own national security interests, that it's for any country to take any action that it considers, quote-unquote, it considers uh, uh, its own uh, or essential security interests. So you see that the language is uh, wide open. Uh, it, it doesn't give you concrete examples of national security exceptions. Uh, so uh, things uh, perhaps uh, back in 1950s, uh, the Polish government decided that uh, shoes for soldiers are, are national security. That's why they imposed restrictions on the importation of uh, uh, shoes. So we see the whole spectrum, right from 
the trivial, let's put this way, until the serious one when you uh, impose a sanction a country for terrorism, for example. So you see, uh, so see, uh, this side, you have this sort of spectrum between the trivial and the more complex. And you can imagine uh, what type of uh, national security uh, rationale that a country can employ to restrict trade with, with another uh, country. And, uh, and by the way, uh, no WTO uh, panel or GATT panel ever decided the meaning of these words and or what type of limitations that uh, should be imposed on a country that restricts trade. I understand that boycotts and these kinds of invocations of national security interests to restrict trade seem inconsistent with the spirit of a lot of these uh, these international agreements, if not the letter of the agreements as well. I wonder, are there ways to actually use those agreements and international law more generally to uh, prevent countries from engaging in this activity? Or do we have to look somewhere else? I mean, uh, if, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are no precedents within the WTA system that will help out uh, delineate uh, the boundaries for invoking uh, the national security uh, exception because uh, the language uh, as incorporated in uh, uh, the provisions of the GATT or the WTO uh, are expansive one. Uh, there are no sort of limitation. It's uh, self-judgment uh, uh, provision. Uh, quote unquote, it considers uh, goes against its own uh, sec national security interest. But if we look at uh, other areas of law, if we talk about uh, investment law, we've seen some cases brought uh, uh, before uh, investment tribunals uh, under international treaties or bilateral investment treaties. And uh, if you look uh, in total, you'll see that uh, there are two uh, sort of limitations that uh, those. Uh, investment tribunals uh, sort of uh, put there their to limit the discretion for a country in invoking these types of security exceptions. We are talking about the reasonable concept that we have to put uh, a reasonable uh, state or a country in the same shoes of another country and we'll see whether these type of uh, trade restrictions were reasonable. So this is one uh, limitation or condition imposed. The second condition has to do with good faith, that any time you impose uh, these types of uh, measures, we assume as an tr investment tribunal that these measures uh, are sincere. They don't hide uh, some other uh, economic or trade protectionist policies that uh, the goal is really uh, to change behavior or do something else. So we, we can rely and borrow uh, uh, from these two uh, principles adopted uh, on the investment side, and we can borrow them and incorporate them if uh, a future WTO panel would uh, face the question of national security. You could rely on the concept of good faith, whether there was a good faith invoking these national security exceptions, and whether these types of uh, trade, uh, trade restrictions in the name of national security were reasonable. So these uh, could be the, type of, uh, the types of limitations. Yeah, so I wonder if you could talk in a little more detail about sort of what would be a legitimate invocation of a security exception to international trade for national security purposes and how you would go about distinguishing 
between legitimate and illegitimate invocations of these exceptions. Uh, uh, examples that uh, could uh, justify uh, countries employing uh, these types of measures uh, could be, for example, in case of terrorism, uh, in case or in case of uh, engaging in war, uh, a country can impose uh, trade restrictions in case of uh, war, for example. Um, so these are uh, really the two examples that could justify uh, imposing uh, trade restrictions or economic uh, boyc- uh, boycotts. Uh, I mean, uh, ag- once again, uh, I would say that there are, there are no specific circumstances uh, either at the WTO level or even uh, at uh, the level of regional trade agreements that would give you a list, uh, either exhaustive or non-exhaustive list, of the types of examples or scenarios that a national security exception uh, can be employed. So, But, but in general, what, what uh, a, a reasonable uh, uh, rationale for employing these type of measures could be terrorism, could be if two countries are engaging in a war. Uh, now, but uh, unfortunately, what we've seen in the past uh, few years, uh, even on the part of Canada, on the part of China, or Australia, the US, now that they invoke uh, all these uh, uh, all these uh, trade restrictive measures in the name of national security. Uh, so uh, w- that's why I was encouraged uh, to write another paper about the subject and looking at uh, those sort of region trade agreements because at the global level, it seems that countries were hesitant to employ uh, uh, trade restrictive measures or economic boycotts because they felt ashamed or uh, that uh, uh, sort of uh, countries would pressure them at the global level. But now we've seen that countries unilaterally uh, sort of employing this uh, type of these types of measures. So it seemed to me from reading your work that at least some countries are adopting these kinds of boycotts or trade restrictions ostensibly for national security reasons, but really for political negotiation reasons. Are are you suggesting that maybe we should be discouraging or prohibiting countries from using these exceptions in that way? Perhaps uh, uh, it's better if uh, there are a sort of explanation of the circumstances that uh, a country, uh, why or why not, uh, or cannot invoke national security uh, exceptions. Uh, I, I was thinking when I asked this question about the United States-Mexico Canada Free Trade Agreement that was, was signed and implemented uh, a year ago. Uh, it has sort of this uh, language where uh, the U.S. Uh, will uh, and uh, the other parties to this agreement uh, built in this into uh, this uh, national security exception where they can limit trade for national security reasons, for uh, example, to maintain international peace or security or restore peace and security. And again, they provided a, a list of side letters to this language where the where the countries decided that we exclude each other when they impose tariffs on imports, for example, of steel 
steel. So the U.S. will not impose uh, uh, tariffs on imports of steel from Canada and Mexico uh, under, under the name of national security. So this is an example of how the U.S. shifted from more expansive and self-judgment uh, provisions in other free trade areas with uh, the Caribbean countries or Latin America or uh, even the Middle Eastern countries. And then in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, free trade agreements, they, they put uh, those limitations in place. So to accommodate the interest of uh, parties. Mm. Well, so you seem to suggest that we should limit or discourage countries from invoking national security justifications uh, spuriously for the purpose of restricting trade. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think we might accomplish that. Is that something that international organizations can do, or do we ultimately have to rely on sort of internal state politics in order to accomplish that goal? Thank you for this uh, excellent question. I mean, if you look at the, the history of international organizations, uh, these sort of international organizations or other members are trying to adopt a resolution or amendment to a, a, a provision where sort of they limit uh, the discretion of any uh, member to invoke these type of uh, national security measures uh, would fail. Uh, so uh, uh, by looking at uh, regional trade agreements, that's why I wrote uh, sort of this uh, uh, draft paper about regional trade agreements and national security. It seems that countries where they have a sort of uh, mind group of countries got together and they have their own interest uh, together. So they feel more comfortable in uh, sort of playing around with these type of national security exceptions uh, where they can either expand, can, can either limit or provide specific examples of uh, concrete measures that can be taken or cannot be taken. So you see that uh, countries are more comfortable uh, even imposing limits uh, on national on the, on cases of invoking national security exceptions in regional trade agreements. So I think the solution would come uh, from, of course, within the political system of a country such as the U.S. and also uh, within a group of countries, and I'll give you the example uh, of uh, the United States-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement, uh, which was previously called NAFTA. So uh, the solution would be national one and a regional one. I don't see, even for the foreseeable future, an international organization such as the WTO would undertake the, uh, the task of reforming uh, the security exception uh, provisions to put a limit or uh, explanation of the circumstances that would qualify as a national security exception. So, Bashar, in closing, I, I, I can't help but wonder whether the sort of role you're describing for international organizations is one that countries want or not? And I guess kind of like what that question even, even really, really means. I mean, it sounds like, or like, it sounds to me sort of like a hand tying role, almost like the international organizations would maybe prohibit certain kinds of invocations of exceptions in ways that would ultimately be beneficial to countries in the long term, even though short-term politics might counsel in favor of them engaging in that kind of behavior. Do you think that's the kind of role that international organizations could play? And sort of what are the politics of like the, the kinds of proposals or concerns 
that you're discussing in your work? Yes, uh, I mean uh, when the WTA came into existence, you uh, you have all these writings uh, where they say that now we have a legalization of the world trading system, that politics will play minimal role in world trade affairs, and I was looking and say, wow, uh, I don't think this will ever happen. Uh, there is all. This is all, there is always and will be forever a balancing act, even for international organizations. It's sort of prison, prisoner dilemma. We want these organizations to succeed, to be effective. We want countries to participate, but at the same time, you cannot help. But each country will pursue its own interest, which sometimes go against the core principles of an international organization such as the WTO. So my my argument would be that it's a balancing act. Even for a tribunal, they're supposed to be neutral, but sometimes they cannot accept, they cannot escape a fact of life that we live in a different kind of politics. Politics sometimes will have to be taken into account to appease to every country. So this will save and or international organization uh, such as the WTO from uh, being criticized or even uh, being uh, in paralysis or in crisis as we've seen in recent months uh, with regard to the WTO panel and appellate body. And at the same time, we uh, we will uh, appease and we will ensure the continued contribution of those participating countries. It's it's a balancing act. You cannot say 100% that we live in a legalized world trade system. And at the same time, you, we cannot say that it's really all about politics. So it's a, it's a, f- a fine line that uh, countries and organizations will have to walk. Well, Bashar, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this important and quite timely issue. Um, I hope the insights that you've provided today will inform the trade policy of the future Biden administration. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Brian, for hosting me. It has been uh, a wonderful experience uh, and uh, meeting, and I hope uh, that uh, some way I, I contributed to the discussion uh, about uh, national security and international trade.
And in the ghostly palm trees, the sleepy tune of the quiet voice calling 